Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today we're going to be looking at the interpretation of the book of Revelation. That's right. We're really excited to have Jimmy Aiken with us, a, a master apologist and someone who's going to really help us unpack this very mysterious book of the Bible. It's great to have Jimmy back on. And guess what? I mean, I, I dressed up for this you occasion <laughs> because you've never seen me in a suit coat because... There's a number one fan of Jimmy Aiken, and it happens to be my bishop. So if there's any chance of him watching a show, it's this one. So let's get started. Jimmy, great to have you on the show. Apparently, you influence uh, wardrobe here on the talk yeah. show, so thank you for that. And um, Bishop Polmeyer has has absolutely uh, expressed his his regular attendance and and everything that you do, Jimmy. And and it's a joy to have you back on the show. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be back. And uh, hello to the bishop. <laughs> so, Jimmy, before we get started, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about you know, who you are and where they can find you, your work with Catholic Answers, your work on Mysterious World and more. Sure. So um, I, uh, I'm, an, I'm an apologist for my day job, and I work for Catholic Answers. Our website is catholic.com. I am these days the longest standing employee at Catholic Answers. I'm in my 30th year. I'll have my 30th anniversary of working for Catholic Answers next June 1st, the feast day of Justin Martyr, which is who's the patron of apologists. So that was a fortuitous uh, providential report to work date that was not planned. Um, people can check out my stuff at my personal website, jimmyaken.com. Uh, my last name is so easy. People want to make it hard. They want to add E's and T's and S's, <laughs> but it's just four letters. A K I N A K E N, really easy. So jimmyaken.com. Um, I also, as you do a number of podcasts, as you mentioned, uh, the best known of them is Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. And every Friday, we look at a mysterious subject from the perspectives of faith and reason. And people can uh, hook up with the podcast in any podcast directory, or they could go to mysterious.fm. Or they could go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. Yeah, that's a, it's an amazing show. Yeah. It's really great topics. And all of Jimmy's work on, on Catholic Answers really is, I mean, the debt that the modern Catholic Internet regular user owes to his work on there is really astounding. And the quality of the answers and, and the contextual mm -hmm. view of how he approaches it is a reason that we really wanted to bring him on for this particular mysterious mm -hmm, yeah. topic. And this is something we've wanted to do on the show for a long time, is look at the book of Revelation. But we really wanted to bring somebody in, maybe a little bit above our pay grade, mm -hmm. to help us out with this. Because More mysterious. It is, because this book is so hard to interpret, and there's so many ways, and there's so many... There's so many misinterpretations. There really is, yeah. And there's so many... Uh, uh, obscure and hard-to-understand images and phrases and historical context that unless you have somebody who's really studied it and is a master apologist like Jimmy, you can get lost in this book. It's true. You really can. Yeah. So, Jimmy, if you would, tell us about, I think a great place to start is who wrote the book of Revelation, because there is some debate even around that topic itself. Um, you know, it's traditionally ascribed to St. John or, Saint, or John of Patmos, but who is this John? Is it the same as 
the Apostle John, or is this a different John? Well, uh, as you've indicated, there's a debate about that, and not just today. This is a debate that they had in the early church. We know uh, of all the Joannine literature, so that's the Gospel of John, the Book of Revelation, and then the three epistles of John, this is the only one that actually tells us the name of the person who wrote it. And he says, you know, I, your brother, John. So we know that this book was written by somebody named John, which is a Jewish name, so we know he was Jewish. Also, it's clear he was Jewish because Revelation is very, very heavily informed by the by symbolism from the Old Testament. So that would tell us even if we didn't know his name. But there's a discussion both in the in the early church and today about which John it is. Now, historically, the um, the most common view has been that it was written by John the Apostle or John son of Zebedee, and he's also regarded as traditionally as the author of the rest of the Joannine literature. So he would be the same as the author of the Gospel and of the three epistles. But there um, is an alternative view that you had among the early church fathers that said, it's not John, son of Zebedee, it's another figure named John the Elder. And John the Elder, from, uh, from an early second century source, we're told, was an eyewitness of Jesus's ministry. And so he, he wasn't a member of the Twelve, he wasn't John, son of Zebedee, but he was an eyewitness of Jesus's ministry. And there's actually also a, a lesser debate. Now, the book of Revelation is the most controverted book, where you have some people saying it's John, son of Zebedee, others saying it's John the Elder. But um, there's also a debate about the rest of the Joannine literature. In the early church, you had some people who would say that second and third John were also written by the Elder, because that's how he introduces himself. He doesn't say the elder, or he doesn't say John to so-and-so. He says the elder to the beloved woman and the elder to Gaius. And so figures like St. Jerome uh, held that at least second and third John were written by John the elder. Um, you also had that, if I'm not mistaken, in the Council of Rome in, uh, in 381, under Pope Damasus I, held that position. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI holds that position. Um, And in recent times, there's also been debate about could uh, John the Elder also be the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John? Because that John is clearly close to Jesus, and it's clearly an eyewitness, but in the Gospel of John, the beloved disciple seems to be on a first-name basis—well, actually, yes, a first-name basis—with the high priest and his household, because he gets Peter into the garden, and um, and he, whereas he's just admitted, he the, the serving maid of the high priest knows him and lets him in, but keeps Peter out at first, and it takes the intervention of the beloved disciple to get Peter admitted to the courtyard. And it's very unlikely that an illiterate first-century fisherman like John, son of Zebedee, would be personally known to the household of the high priest and the high priest himself. So there has been suggestion that maybe maybe um, this John, the John who wrote the gospel, is not a, a rural fisherman, but a member of the Jerusalem elite mm-hmm. who would know the high priest. And there's also been suggestion maybe both Johns 
were involved in the gospel. That position actually uh, has been advocated by Pope Benedict. Um, he was of the view that the beloved disciple is Zebedee's son, but the gospel was written by John the Elder. So, um, so there's debate about all of this. Mm. That's really interesting. And there's even debate in the early churches to whether or not to allow the book of Revelation into canon. From my understanding, it was the last book admitted into canon. Mm. Well, I don't know we can say it's exactly the last book, but it was one of the certainly one of the later books. Mm-hmm. Um, you had, at the beginning of the 4th century, uh, Eusebius of Caesarea gives a list of books of Scripture, and he, he classifies them into three groups. He's got the accepted books that pretty much everybody agrees to, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Epistles of Paul. Then there's a debated category, and then there's a rejected category, which includes, you know, Gnostic Gospels and things like that. And he puts Revelation in the debated category. So that was around 325. It was still debated with some Christians accepting it and some not. By the end of the fourth century, though, it had become broadly accepted in the Christian community. And what, if you could elaborate a little bit more, because this is fascinating to me, but uh, the debated category, what would be the considerations of what would draw something into what was debatable uh, in putting in the canon and um, as it relates? Well, the, the basic criterion that the early church used for is something, should something be considered scripture or not, is, is it apostolic? If it was approved by the apostles, like the books of the Old Testament, then it would be scripture. If it was written by an apostle, then it would be considered scripture. And if it was written by someone who the apostles approved of, like Mark or Luke, then it could be considered scripture. But there were border cases. Um, for example, there in the first century, there was a work written of uh, a private revelation known as the Shepherd of Hermas. It's a series of visions that a gentleman from Rome who was named Hermas had. And according to various sources in the early church fathers, this is the same Hermas that is mentioned in the Book of Romans as a Roman Christian. And so, okay, here we have this prophetic book, and it's written by someone who's got a connection to the apostles. I mean, Paul apparently greets him in Romans, Mm. so maybe he's kind of in the same category as Mark, as a non-apostle, but who was approved by apostles and wrote inspired scripture. So you did have some in the early church who thought maybe the shepherd of Hermas should be scripture. Um, And it took the Holy Spirit a few centuries to guide the church into a recognition of the canon that we have today, and eventually things got clarified. So the fundamental criterion was apostolicity, but they then used tradition to try to clarify, okay, exactly what here is is apostolic and and what's not. Mm. So looking at that historical aspect and context, what was the historical context of the time when this book was written, because this book seems to be both something that's drawn out into the future and from eternity, but also something of a very specific place and time and a very specific condition of the believers in Jesus Christ that they were experiencing. So what was kind of the, I guess, the the, the confluence of events around this book being written, and where was it written? Well, um, we're told where it was written. Um, It was written on uh, one of the Mediterranean islands known as Patmos, which is off the coast of Ephesus, um, which is in modern Turkey. 
So this is one of the islands that's between Greece and Turkey. And you'll often hear that um, Patmos was a prison island. And so they, they, it was like a penal colony. That's actually not true. Um, we don't have any evidence that Patmos was a penal colony, but Romans would banish people to islands. And John says in Revelation that he's on Patmos because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that could just mean he was there evangelizing people, but according to various early Christian sources, they say that the emperor had banished him there. And so, uh, you know, and this was a common thing. I mean, Roman emperors, if they had somebody they didn't want around in Rome, they would kick him out and say, you can't live here. And sometimes they would just say, you can't live in Rome. But other times they would banish them specifically to a particular island to kind of keep them away from Roman society. And so even though Patmos wasn't a prison colony, it's easy to see how John might have been banished there. Uh, kind of then the next question is, well, which emperor banished him? And that deals with what decade the book was written. Now, it, it, everybody pretty much agrees it's written in the first century, but the question is when. And um, a, kind of the majority view today in scholarship would be that it was written in the A.D. 90s. And this is, um, it's based on a, on a few things, including the idea, because Revelation talks about the persecution of Christians, um, people have, have claimed that, okay, the Roman emperor, who was the main emperor in the 90s, was a guy named Domitian. And there's this idea that he persecuted Christians, that there was a Domitianic persecution under this emperor. But the evidence for that is actually really weak. Um, there is not good evidence for a Domitianic persecution. Um, there is a rival view, and this is the one that I personally favor, that the book was written significantly earlier than the 90s. I think it was written in the late AD 60s, which was right during and after the Neronian persecution. So it could have been Nero who banished John to the island. Um, the, and we, we have very good evidence for a Neronian persecution. In fact, Nero was the emperor who, under whom uh, both Peter and Paul were put to death. Um, the reason that I personally think that uh, Revelation was written in the late 60s is because of internal clues in the book. There's one point at which John is called to measure God's temple on earth, and it's clearly on earth in this case. We also have visions of his heavenly temple, but John is sent to measure the temple on earth, which is uh, going to be trodden down by Gentiles, and he speaks of the temple as still functioning. But the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, and so that would suggest Revelation was written before A.D. 70. Also, one of the symbols we have in the book is the beast from the sea, or the famous beast of Revelation, and it has seven heads and... Um, and these heads, we're told, represent seven kings. They also want to be worshipped as deities, and they persecute Christians. And this sounds very much like the first century line of Roman emperors, who were kings. We have no king but Caesar. I mean, they didn't. Technically, the Romans didn't want to call them kings, but they functioned that way, mm -hmm. and everybody knew it. And um, they, uh, many of them wanted to be worshipped as deities. They were worshipped as deities around the empire, not always in the city of Rome itself during their lifetimes, but they were, from Augustus forward, worshipped as deities elsewhere in the empire. And they, they did, beginning with Nero, persecute Christians. 
So um, we're told that of the heads, of the seven heads, five have fallen, one is, and another will come, but only reign for a short time. So if these are the Roman emperors, the first five would be Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. Those would be the five emperors who are dead. The one emperor who is, who's reigning right now, would be Nero's successor, Galba, who reigned in the second half of 68 after Nero's suicide and into January of 69. And so I would say that's when this book was written. Mm -hmm. it's, it's telling us from the line of emperors when it was written. It was written during the reign of Galba in the second half of 68. And then the imp one emperor who followed was Galba's successor, Otho, and he really did reign only a short time. He reigned for just three months. And was that more of like a prophetic utterance, Jimmy, in, in respect to that one that would only like reign for a short period of time? Oh, yeah, it's a prediction. It, it hasn't happened yet because this emperor has yet to come, so it would be a prophecy. Yeah, Otho is a really interesting case. Yeah, I actually just read about him. Uh, Galba was kind of a n unliked general, and, and Otho was kind of a more liked provincial general. And, uh, you know, he got passed over for being adopted, you know, as the next emperor, and, yeah, his whole reign went terribly wrong. And it's really pretty interesting that his reign and this kind of confusion around the emperor really is tied into the destruction of Jerusalem just a few years later because that destruction of Jerusalem, uh, you know, and, and like, you know, the triumph arch of Titus was all, even the Flavian Colosseum was financed probably from the spoils of plundering Jerusalem. So there's, this is a really heavy, mm. you know, pardon the term, apocalyptic times both politically in the Roman Empire, but also what was happening in, in you know, Jerusalem and the Holy Land. There's also another connection with Otho, um, because we're told that of the beast's seven heads, one of them seemed to have a fatal wound, and yet it lived. And that could be a reference to Caligula, who was assassinated. He was so terrible, he was assassinated by his own guards, and then, uh, and he had wanted to be worshipped as a deity in Rome. And then Nero was very much like Caligula. So that could be a reference to Nero and Caligula. But most scholars have taken it to be a reference to uh, a very common bit of folklore in the first century that Nero would return after his suicide. The, the Roman Senate declared him an enemy of the state, and he committed suicide. Um, but uh, some of his immediate successors patterned themselves after Nero, and Otho was one of them. In fact, Otho referred to himself as Otho Nero to link himself publicly to Nero. And so that could be the sense in which the stricken, the wounded head returns mm -hmm. in the form of this other emperor that patterns himself after Nero. Because didn't the, basically the Julio-Claudian line died out, or not, with Nero, with Nero. so it's basically a... You know, it goes to Galba, who was not related to them. Um, and then maybe, you know, like you said, tying himself mm -hmm. back to this line, to the that, return yeah. of this, basically this imperial line. Mm -hmm. So that, that could be one way that I've seen it um, possibly interpreted. Jimmy, was this um, part of Revelation meant to describe the particular era in which it was written? Or is it more of a, a place for the, the writer to begin 
um, the rest of the book in terms of uh, the mystical visions that were received? This is a very important question, and it's one of the it's probably the key question for the interpretation of Revelation. Now, what John tells us in the very first verse of the book is that this vision is to show God's servants what must happen soon. And that's reiterated at the end of the book, that this is what's going to happen soon. So most of the book, just you know, starting from first principles, you want to take a book at face value and say, what would it have meant to its original audience? If you're a first century Christian in, in Turkey, which is where the seven churches the book is written to were, you're a first century Turkish Christian, you're told this vision is going to happen soon. That's not going to mean more than 2,000 years from now. Right. That's going to mean really quickly. And so at our first pass approximation of how to read the book, we should assume, at least provisionally, that it, it the book, or at least the bulk of the book, pertains to events early in Christian history, either the first century or the first few centuries. But part of the book, at the end, clearly deals with events in our future, because it's describing the resurrection of the dead and the setting up of the eternal order and so forth. So somehow we've got to get from events early in Christian history to our future. And the, the easiest way to do that would be if there is a part of the book presumably towards the end, so that most of it can be soon. Um, if there's a period towards the end of the book that's very long, so like you, you would, most of it could be about the first century or first few centuries, then there's a long period of time, and then we have the end of the world. Well, it so happens that's exactly what's in Revelation. In chapter 20, we have a period described as a thousand years or a millennium, and um, and a thousand years is a stock number in the Bible. It just symbolizes a very large quantity, like when God says, I own the cattle of a, on a thousand hills. Well, it's, there's not a thousand and first hill where God doesn't own the cattle. A thousand just means this vast multitude of hills. I own all the animals. Um, well, uh, that would seem to be how we get from the soon part of the book, which is most of it, to the future part of the book. And so um, the way I read Revelation, it's pretty straightforward. The first 19 chapters deal with either the first century or the first few centuries. The millennium, where the devil is restrained from being able to deceive the nation so the gospel goes forward, that's when we're living right now. And that's been the majority interpretation of the millennium throughout Christian history. And then we have a final unleashing of the forces of evil um, and, and the return of Christ and the, uh, the raising of the dead and the judgment and the eternal order at the very end. So that's kind of the framework that, um, that I think best makes sense of the book. Now, there are alternative views. Um, one alternative view is known as historicism, and this view tries to make Revelation sort of a roadmap of Christian history. So you could you could go forward, you could find Muhammad in it, you could find Martin Luther in it, you could find communism in it, and things like that. But every historicist system that has been tried has been invalidated, uh, because, and it's also really sketchy, and it doesn't fit 
um, John's statement that this is all going to happen soon. Um, another view is called the idealist view, and it says that um, that Revelation represents things that will happen over and over again in church history. You know, persecutions and triumphs, and persecutions and triumphs. <coughs> and, so and then there's another view that says, no, it's all future. Once you get past the messages to the seven churches, everything's in our future, which really does not fit mm-hmm. the statement. This is all going to happen soon. It's possible, though, for more than one of these to have uh, uh, an aspect of truth, though, because one of the things you find when you study biblical prophecy is it can have more than one fulfillment. A classic example of this is from the book of Isaiah, where you have the prophecy of Emmanuel. Well, okay, um, we know from the New Testament that Emmanuel is Jesus Christ. I mean, Matthew says so. But if what happens when you read the text in Isaiah? Well, King Ahaz is terrified that uh, the king of northern Israel and the king of uh, Syria are going to come down to Jerusalem and stomp him. And King Ahaz lives in, lives in the 800s BC or 700s BC. So this is hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. He's terrified of these two foreign kings, and so God sends the prophet Isaiah to him to reassure him. And he says, name a sign, and God will produce the sign to show you that you're going to be okay. And Haz at this point, gets all spiritual and says, oh, I'm not going to test the Lord. And Isaiah says, dude, are you going to, is it not enough for you to wear out men's patience? Are you going to wear out God's patience too? Well, here's what's going to happen. God himself will name you a sign. This young woman's going to bear a son. He's going to be called Emmanuel. And before he's old enough to reach the age of reason, um, these other two kings are going, to be, are going to be gone. Their lands are going to be depopulated. Now, the only way that could serve as a sign for King Ahaz hundreds of years before Christ is if there was a child born in his own day. And so uh, scholars have debated who that child might be. Some have suggested it might be Ahaz's own son who would grow up to be King Hezekiah. Others have suggested it might be one of Isaiah's sons. But there had to be some child in Isaiah's day to fulfill this prophecy as its primary fulfillment, and then it had a later fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Well, the same thing could be true of Revelation. It could be that um, the primary fulfillment of the book was in the first century, but there could be fulfillments, uh, uh, secondary fulfillments occurring during church history, and there could be another secondary fulfillment in our future. So we shouldn't think about this as if it can have only one meaning, because scriptural passages can have more than one meaning and more than one application. All right, I, I, can, I have a question. Like, I'm, I'm wondering that the contextual uh, information you've given us has just kind of got my head going here. Um, you know, how many times over the century would you say that most people are approaching this um, book in the Bible uh, under the context of really trying to understand it versus utilizing it, creating some sort of conjecture in society to build something around it? Um, <laughs> you know, because... Because I, I mean, I, I'm I live in the in, same boat with you. Yeah, I live in Houston, and you know we have Joel Osteen, and you know, like so, and so I know I know people use scripture for a lot of different reasons, and and there's a lot of conjecture out of it that's not accurate. 
Um, for, I, I read a book in in the seminary too that that just basically identified over the, in the twentieth century how the Book of Revelation really drove uh, you know drew through fear tactics and and really this false sense of prophecy and just really uh, you know proselytized people. Right. Uh, but it, it, there's but been what some... I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you look at society as a whole, like moving forward through history, they do this with a lot of books, right? Mm-hmm. They do it with gospels. However, with this particular book, it would seem to me that mm-hmm. one would be lending himself to that. For And I just was wondering if that was accurate. And, and Well, I, I mean, every generation thinks they're living in the end times. Right. And there has been some spectacular failures of people saying, the book of Revelations means this, and it means this now in our times. Yeah. And there's been some huge Every failures. generation has done that. And yeah. Ryan's unsubscribed from their channels because of it. <laughs> well, this is before channels, but yeah, I have. But Jimmy does not do that. No. And that's why we want to hear what you have to say about that. Jimmy, Jimmy. do we live in the end times? <laughs> uh, the New Testament says we do, but that means the end times have been going on for 2,000 years. This is yeah. the final stage of world history uh, between you know the Christian age, after the first coming of Christ, before the second coming of Christ. So yeah, we live in the end times in that sense, but that doesn't tell us anything about how close we are to the second coming. And you all have alluded to the fact that, you know, every generation tends to wonder, could this be the end? And a significant number of people want to say yes, um, because in part it's frightening and exciting to think we're right at the end. Mm -hmm. And so when they see John saying this is going to happen soon, they think soon for me Mm -hmm. rather than soon for the original audience. And so there is this history of, uh, especially in times of stress and social change, of people um, wanting to apply the book directly to their own times. Mm -hmm. So far they've all been wrong, but at some point somebody will be right. Um, Now... You can see, and Father, you mentioned how this happened over the course of the 20th century, and there's some interesting history there, because um, at the in the 19th century, there was what's sometimes referred to as the myth of progress. You know, the scientific revolution that happened, society ha- had or was industrializing, people's lives were changing, there were new things like railroads and telegraphs and even telephones and electric light towards the end of the 19th century. And everything seemed to be improving. And so the idea that we were living on the edge of the apocalypse kind of receded. But then in the early 20th century, World War I, and then a few decades, World War II, and then immediately Cold War and nuclear Armageddon. And the times in the 20th century felt much more apocalyptic. And so you had um, a lot more people saying, okay, this is it. Revelation is about to be fulfilled. You actually had people speculating that World War I might have the Battle of Armageddon. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses were big on that. Um, You had people wondering, could Adolf Hitler be the Antichrist? And then you had, could one of the Soviet premiers be the Antichrist? And you had in the 1970s, Hal Lindsey predicting that everything was going to come to a head in the 1980s, and that would be the end of the world. Um, Since the end of the Cold War, that's receded. And some of the more traditional views of Revelation have reasserted themselves. And so there isn't as much of a, we're the fi- definitely the final generation and everything is about to happen. There's not as much of that now, but you can see how the events of the 20th century caused a lot of that speculation to happen. 
Mm-hmm. Very interesting. It's almost like a chicken in the egg. Thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a good point to kind of then jump into some of the more specific um, examples of things that are hard to understand in the book of Revelation. Yeah, interpreting uh, all of the visions. The, the visions, the signs, because yeah. these things are deep and mm-hmm. dense with the amount of, um, I guess, what you could read into and what they would have meant in historical critical method to the person who has ears mm-hmm. at the time and what they can mean now and what they can mean in light of, you know, you know, all of, um, you know, the prophets of the old Testament. It's a very densely woven tapestry. Mm-hmm. And yeah, from thank God we have Jimmy Aiken here. Cause guys, the three of us, this would have been a problem. This episode the, would have tanked. the illustration, the delivery, the imagery, it's, it's the most evocative of imaginative prayer that you could really come to. I mean, I, I love going to the book of Daniel. I love Zechariah. The vision. I love, there's so many things throughout scripture that I love, but revelation is just like this kind of compact experience of like amazing imagery and even the sense of like before the throne of God, Yeah, you know, that, that in and of itself is just really fascinating. So I would love to start going through some of these details with you, Jimmy, and, and hear what you have to say. Yeah. Well, I think y'all have touched on a very important point, which a lot of people do not realize. And that is that revelation is very, very heavily based on the imagery that's used in the Old Testament and especially in the Old Testament prophets. Uh, A lot of times people will approach Revelation without that background. And like, for example, um, at one point there are demon locusts that appear that have stings in their tails in Revelation. And, And I, I I know that like Hal Lindsey, who wrote the book The Late Great Planet Earth back in the nineteen seventies, he looked at that and said, "Oh, those those are uh, those are helicopters, and they've they've got like stinger missiles or something mounted on them." I remember that. I remember uh, being a kid reading that, and he's like, "Oh, look at that! There, this is the." He was having a vision, and he looked in his crystal ball, and he saw a helicopter, and all he could think of is, I don't know, it's a locust with a stinger, because he couldn't understand Demon the future technology. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, I remember reading that. And and this is a mistake. You don't want to impressionistically relate symbols in the book of Revelation to your own experience. What you want to do is relate them to the Old Testament, because that's where John, that is John's A number one primary source of symbolism. There's lots of stuff in Revelation that comes from the Old Testament. And so you really need to know your Old Testament, you need to know your Old Testament prophets, and you need to know what the Old Testament prophecies meant in their original context if you want to understand how John is using them. Um, There's an excellent book by uh, a British scholar named Richard Balcom. B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M, Richard Baucom, called The Climax of Prophecy. And that's essentially what John viewed Revelation as. This is the climax of all the prophecy that's been building through the Old Testament, and now with the message of Jesus Christ, it all comes to its climax. And so if you want to understand what John's writing, you need to read your Old Testament. Mm. But are there particular symbols that y'all would like to talk about in Revelation? Well, I think we could start with kind of looking at how the book flows, right? You know, it starts with the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And then it goes into the throne of God, and, you know, he's surrounded by the, this vision. With, like, 24 elders and, like... Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of numbers in there. There's yeah. a lot of um, of yeah. the heavenly host. So can we unpack that yeah, a little like bit? like, what does that all represent? And, and that's and kind of like the beginning of the... Of the um, 
the, the vision aspect mm -hmm. of the book. What you were mentioning before, yeah. you know, and, and just really getting into the beginning, let's try to flow through it so we can have more of a, I guess, a conservative or, or a proper interpretation yeah. of, of some of these imageries. So um, one thing I'd recommend at jimmyakin.com, I have a paper on the structure of Revelation that goes into, I, I try to build the structure from the ground up, um, looking at individual units of text and then how they relate to each other until I develop a structure. So that could be of assistance to people. So if anyone's watching, look in the show notes below. If you're watching on YouTube, look in the description. I'll have a link to that in there. And if you're watching this live, uh, there'll be a link in the, in the chat going on. And then if you're on the website, there'll be a link on the website page for this episode too to go and get that structure from Jimmy. Okay, so basically, um, much of the book of Revelation is based um, around what are sometimes called heptads. Um, a heptad is a group of seven, and so there are four. John init initially starts on Patmos, he sees a vision of the Son of Man, and then the Son of Man directs him to write messages. Sometimes they're called letters, but they're really not letters, they're messages, to these seven churches in Asia Minor. And they're all on the same road, actually, so we can tell kind of the route that the messenger would have took dropping off copies of the book. Um, and, and that's our first heptad. Our first group of seven is the messages to uh, the seven churches of Asia. There are actually more than seven churches that we know about, but the number seven is significant, so that's why these seven get picked. And there are various praises and criticisms that Jesus gives to these churches, but, you know, therefore the guidance of these churches. Then John is caught up to God's throne in heaven, and he sees God on the throne. He sees uh, four living creatures around the throne, and these four living creatures combine elements of the seraphim from Isaiah and the cherubim from Ezekiel. They're like a fusion of the two, and they appear to represent the leadership of the of the angels in heaven. Around them is a group of twenty four elders who are offering uh, worship to God as well. They appear to represent the leadership of God's er, human people in heaven. Around them is a is a vast number of millions of angels, and beyond them is a vast collection of human beings. So it goes God angel leaders, human leaders, angels, humans. Um, what kind of John circles, that's cool. Exactly. What John then sees is God is holding a scroll in his hand. And it's, it's an interesting kind of scroll. It's called an epistograph. An epistograph is a scroll that has writing on both sides. Normally in the ancient world, they only wrote on one side of a scroll because the backside was rough. It wasn't polished, and it was because all this was handmade paper. And so if you write on both sides of a scroll, you've got a lot to say. And um, so this is a really impactful scroll. It's got a very important, impressive message in it, but it is sealed to, by seven seals. A seal, we don't use them so much today, but they were a security device to keep messages from being read by unauthorized people. And nobody is able to take off the seven seals until John sees Jesus arrive as the Lamb of God, and he is able to remove the seals. And so as he does so, he's unsealing this message that God has, and based on the content of the book, it's a message of judgment. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so he's unsealing this message of judgment, and as he does so, various signs appear that also, for the most part, represent judgments. Like the four horsemen of the apocalypse occur at this point. They're the first four seals. Uh, he sees an, uh, a rider on a white horse, then a rider on a red horse, then a, and a rider on a black horse, and a rider on a green horse. Now, some of the um, some of the translations in English you'll see say a pale horse, but in Greek the word is chloros, which is the same place we get chlorophyll. It means green, and the same place where we get the word the name Chloe, which is my daughter's name. Oh. So I absolutely, I actually caught that Greek name there. Mm-hmm. So it, I find it interesting. You've got uh, white and black and red and green. So you have these color opposites, and the first writer. Mm-hmm on the yeah. white horse is oftentimes uh, thought to be Christ. And, and I want to give that position its props, but personally, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's uh, an emperor because he's given a bow and uh, told to go forth and conquer. And then that leads to the red horse, which is clearly war. And that leads to famine and that leads to death. And that's a natural progression. Uh, emperors lead to cause wars, which lead to famine and death. And so that seems to be part of the judgment. Now, if I'm right that this was written in AD 68, we're in the middle of the Jewish war at where the temple's going to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think it, it fits very well with the time. But then after, so this is our second heptad, the seven seals. The first was the seven messages. Now we've got the seven seals. Then we're going to move on to another set of heptad, another heptad, another set of seven, which are the seven trumpets. Mm -hmm. And trumpets are things you use to announce messages. So, um, you know, you, you sound trumpets, people gather, and you tell them what the king's message is. And this is going to be more of the same. We've had God's decree, which was the the scroll, and its seven seals. Then we, and now that it's been opened, we're going to announce what the message is. And so the seven trumpets sound, and they also represent various judgments that happen. Then we move on to a final heptad, which is the seven bowls. And here. Um, angels in heaven have ceremonial bowls like you would use in a temple to pour out libations before the deity in worship. They would, you know, do this with blood at the temple in Jerusalem. Well, um, here... We still do this for our homies on the streets. <laughs> pour a little bit out for them. Okay. Uh, here we have angels in god's heavenly temple and they pour out the bowls on earth and we're specifically told that these are seven last plagues that finish god's judgment so that's the main flow through a good chunk of the book of revelation it's god has decreed judgment on the world the decree is unsealed then we announce the judgment then we execute the judgment Mm-hmm. And um, and this is God's judgment on the pagan world at the time. It's a spiritual judgment, at least its first century application is, but that's what's going on here. We also have inserted into these heptads some additional material 
that deals with uh, the famous beast of the book of Revelation and also the whore of Babylon. And then eventually we get at the end of the book to the um, to the resurrection of the dead and the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem. And there's obvious parallelism, for example, between the whore of Babylon and the bride of Christ. One is, they're both pictured as women. They are both cities. You know, New Jerusalem is the heavenly city, um, and the whore of Babylon, we're also told, is a great city that rules the kings of the earth. It's It most probably is either Rome, which ruled the kings of the earth in a political sense, or Jerusalem, which ruled the world, the kings of the world in a spiritual sense, or it could be a kind of combination of the two. Mm-hmm. But those are the plausible candidates for what the whore is. One is a whore, it's betrayed, it, it, it's unfaithful. The other is a bride, it's faithful. And so you have a clear mm-hmm. antithesis between these two cities, and they both get descriptions at some length. At one point, an angel comes to John and takes him to the wilderness to show him a vision of the whore, and then later another angel takes John and shows him a vision of the bride. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's so many individual symbols like, you know, a dragon wiping out, you know, a third of all the stars or, you know, the woman clothed in the sun or, you know, the descriptions of the different beasts. Everyone always thinks there's one beast in Revelation. There's multiple beasts, you know. Um, But I think a really interesting one, and this goes back to, Jimmy, kind of your theory about the timeline for when this was written as who is that beast in the Revelation, the beast from the sea? Um, Because that's the one with... You know, they have the mark of the devil, yeah. the mark of the beast on their head. That's the one that people mm-hmm. really tie into or really have like a lot of, I guess, uh, you know, interest around. So um, we're told a number of things about the beast from the sea, uh, which is just commonly called the beast because it's the famous one. Yeah. Um, it has the seven heads and ten horns, and it persecutes the saints, and it has a number, which is 666. Well, we've kind of sketched that, okay, um, when we're also told that it's seven heads in addition to representing seven kings represent seven hills and rome is famous as a city that was built on seven hills it also had these emperors in the first century and so i would say that prima facie the logical interpretation of the beast is rome this is the roman empire and as far as its number we're told that its number is 666 and that it's the number of a man. And John invites his first century readers to calculate the number of the beast, because he says, if you're wise, you can do this. And that would indicate that the beast existed in the first century, and its number was calculable in the first century. Well, this refers to a practice in the ancient world known as gematria, now, today, we have our ABCs and our 123s. We have different letters and numbers. They did not in the, in the ancient world. Um, their alphabet would double as their number system. And that was true. Uh, that's certainly true. At least part of the alphabet doubles as numbers in Latin. Mm-hmm. You know, IV is four, V is five, and VI is six, for example. But in mm-hmm. Greek, every letter had a numerical value. And in Hebrew and Aramaic, every letter had a numerical value. Well, based on the clues we've got so far about who the beast is, it appears to be linked to the first century line of Roman emperors, 
and it persecutes Christians. So were there any first century Roman emperors who persecuted Christians and had names that added up to 666? Yes. In Hebrew, one of the ways you spell, and, and Aramaic, they use the same alphabet, and so the same numbering system. In Hebrew and Aramaic, one of the ways you spell Nero, Nero Caesar, is Neron Kassar, N-R-W-N-Q-S-R, to use the English letter equivalents. And if you add up N-R-W-N-Q-S-R, you get 666. Yeah, and I think that is... Very clearly evident mm-hmm. that yeah. that this was about, and like you said, this is things to happen now. And Nero, the beast from the sea, the Romans came on their boats from all the way from Italy and spread out across the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. They made it the, the Mediterranean, a Roman lake. So they're coming from the sea. There's seven hills. And it's, it's a Mediterranean, our sea. Yeah, Mar, Mar Nostrum, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think this is something that everyone's always looking like, well, Gorbachev has a mark on his head or... Ronald Reagan is his, Ronald Wilson Reagan, six letters. E. Everyone's always looking for some kind of the beast. And I think this is a very clear matter. And Jimmy, you've explained it perfectly well mm-hmm. that it's, I don't think it's really debatable that it's Nero. Mm-hmm. I mean, but is it, Jimmy? Is there other options there? Well, there are other options, but this is one that best fits the evidence. And there's additional evidence that confirms it because there's a second way to spell Nero Caesar in Hebrew and Aramaic, and that's N-R-W-Q-S-R. You leave off one of the N's. Mm -hmm. And, um, And if you do that and add it up, if you leave off one of the N's, noon in in Hebrew and Aramaic has a value of 50. Mm-hmm. So if you leave off one of the ends, just NRW and then QSR, Nero Caesar, um, you get 616. And it so happens we have manus- early manuscripts of Revelation that give the number as 616. So it looks like some of the early copyists were aware of who Nero was, that he's that it's his number that is the number of the beast, and some of them used alternate spellings of Nero and and had an alternate number in their manuscripts. So this shows early first and second century recognition of this interpretation. Um, there's also then the question of well, how did it manifest? Because John says people had it on their on their foreheads or on their right hands. And as far as we know, people didn't literally tattoo this number on themselves. Well, so how should we understand it? Well, Revelation is a book of symbols. And as I mentioned, these symbols are drawn from the Old Testament. If you read Ezekiel, there is a period where God is about to go through Jerusalem in judgment, and a bunch of people are going to be struck down. But before God lets the angels do that, he says he tells one of them, go through the city and put a mark on the foreheads of all the righteous people. And in in Hebrew, the mark it says to put is a tau or tav, which was the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and in Paleo-Hebrew script, it was written as two crossed lines, as a cross. And so they're putting a cross on the foreheads of all of the righteous people to protect them from God's wrath. Well, what do we see in the book of Revelation? The mark of the beast comes up at the end of chapter 13. And a lot of people stop reading there at the end of the chapter. But the chapter divisions are introduced centuries later. 
originally you would have read about the mark of the beast and just kept going and it, and the very next thing you would read about at the beginning of chapter 14 is 144 righteous people being sealed with the mark of God and the lamb on their foreheads to protect them from the coming judgment on earth just like that scene back in Ezekiel and so um we have if you ignore the chapter division, which is artificial, we have a direct juxtaposition of the mark of the beast on the wicked for judgment and the mark of the lamb on the righteous for their protection. Now, is the mark of the lamb literally something written on Christians' foreheads? No, it's an invisible mark provided by God. And that is it like suggest- a chrismation almost. Yeah, and that would suggest the mark of the beast is the same thing. It's not a literal physical tattoo. It's instead a symbol. So what does it symbolize? Well, if you put your uh, head in the service of emperor worship, or if you use your hand, there's actually early Christian sources that discuss this, but you use your hand to uh, toss incense into the pan to worship the emperor, um putting your head in your hand in the service of emperor worship could be understood as okay that's how the mark manifests in you you worship the emperor with your mind and you serve him with your hand oh that's a, and that's yeah, the mark that's yeah that's awesome <laughs> guys i think we made a good call having jimmy on oh this is always a good call to have jimmy yeah. on and jimmy i'm really looking forward i have i, I pulled up on your website jimmyaken.com the structure of revelation and make sure you know before you finish this show to click in the comment section below it's in our show notes wherever you are make sure that you check out jimmy aiken's website and the structure the way that you've typed this up and really provided uh, a great resource really to to kind of journey through the book of revelation uh through that structural approach that you've really been able to articulate so well uh, the the last question that i really have is you know this is so clearly written differently than every other you know scriptural uh book in the bible and and um you know there is very clear ties to the old testament that that definitely evoke a lot of prayer when i'm you know praying through the book of revelation i find myself in the prophets and 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 certainly have uh experienced things but why why did John write in this manner? Like, what was what was the purpose of, uh, you know, and, and what, what does scholarship say about that, uh, of why delivering a message in this way? Well, um, I think there are a number of ways of potentially answering that question. By the way, before I forget, since we were just talking about the number of the beast, I did a whole episode of Mysterious World on the number of the beast, so people can check that out for more detail. And I'll put that link in, in the show notes as well here. Okay. Um, part of it is um, clearly because, well, so, so there are a number of possible answers. One answer that sometimes people propose is that John wrote in this way to code his messages so that they um, wouldn't get the readers in trouble with the Roman authorities. And so so he deliberately obscured them. But a Christian would know. There's a critique of that view, though, which is, hey, you're calling Jesus Christ the Lord of the universe here. That itself is a seditious statement. And all of these symbols about, okay, we got a beast with seven on seven hills, and it serves the devil, and it's got kings that want to be worshipped and that persecute Christians. How hard is it to tell who we're talking about? Right. Um, so that's, uh, I think, a valid critique. Um Another way of approaching it, it would be to simply say, well, 
John saw all this in a vision, and that's why he wrote this way. Um, and okay, that can be true, but in the process of divine inspiration, God uses the background of the inspired author. So, mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't seize control of Paul when Paul is writing. Paul gets to use his background and his knowledge and stuff. And John obviously had a deep knowledge of the Old Testament. And so I would say the fundamental reason that John wrote this way was because that's how the prophets did it. He's following mm -hmm. in the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. Now, you can then ask, well, why did the Old Testament prophets do it this way? And part of the answer is, well, that's what they saw in visions. But also, um, God, it's the same reason God, um, that Jesus taught in parables. Amen to that. And I'm glad you mentioned parables because that, that's where my mind goes to is Jesus mm -hmm. as well as it relates to articulating something that is clearly mysterious. Yeah, like like how Jesus used the language of that would be accessible to the people he was talking yeah. to. And also, honestly, from his own background. Yes. You know, yes. you can see the things that he's familiar with construction and farming. Mm -hmm. He's familiar with, um, you know, the kind of power structure of of land bosses and mm -hmm. laborers. Mm -hmm. And he's using these from his own human, you know, experience as well. And so and I it draws think you in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jesus deliberately taught in a somewhat obscure manner, partly to make it more vivid and memorable, which encourages us to think about it. And also the fact it's obscure means we have to think about it if we want to understand it. That makes it more compelling. We're going to ex understand it more deeply. If Revelation was just a list of predictions, it wouldn't be nearly as fascinating. It would mm -hmm. just be a list of predictions. But God wants us to wrestle with these texts because we learn more by wrestling with it. It's kind of like if you're in math class, if your teacher just tells you the answer to the problem, you're not going to learn your lesson as well as if you have to work out the problem for yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's why prophets, including Jesus, used parables and symbols and things like that in order to uh, have us have to wrestle with it so that we more deeply internalize the message and learn the lessons. You know what I wrestle with, guys, is... Uh, you know, just the aches and the pains of the body and, and the flesh, you know, and, and I constantly need assistance wrestling with those realities. And one thing that helps me is Exodus 90. <laughs> you know, talking about wrestling, we got we to gotta give a shout out to our sponsor, uh, you know, Exodus 90, because... What do cold showers mean, Father? It means a great deal to me because it helps me a lot. You got to wrestle you. through them, though. I'll tell you. Yeah. Oh, you do. Well, I wrestle through them pretty pretty quickly. It's like you know, <laughs> especially taking a shower upstairs. <laughs> yeah, your water system here is a little bit suspect. It is. Yeah, yeah we need to take a look at that. But yeah, Exodus ninety is a great program for men looking to deepen their relationship with Christ, uh, with their family, and with their community through some practices that have been tried and true throughout the history of the church, which are asceticism, fraternity and prayer, mm -hmm. right? Those are pillars of this program. And this program has helped tens of thousands of men realign themselves to become the man that God intends them to be through these things. So whether it's getting rid of frivolous things in your life, like uh, frivolous entertainment, so you're not watching wasteful TV shows, instead you're watching great things like Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Podcast, things that are beneficial to you, right? Maybe it's not taking a nice warm shower. Maybe it's taking a cold shower, which I'm forced to do when I stay at Father Rich's because it's your water <laughs> system, bro. I want um, you to be ascetical as well, guys. It's fraternity. Like, it's also things like not being wasteful with money, right? Making sure that you know, you're know you being prudent with the decisions you make. And it's a great system, a great app. 
And they have a lot of really cool new features like daily prayers, daily uh, reflections. And if you don't have 90 days and you want to do another type of program, they have it. They, they have do. all sorts of uh, you know disciplines yeah. out there. It's yeah. tremendous. So if you go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash exodus, you can get this app and try it out for free. It has changed the lives of tens of thousands of men, and it could do the same for you. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the pillars of Exodus, and I think a great companion after that, is pray. guys, we got to pray, right? Mm-hmm. We got to pray just to make it today, right? Represent MC Hammer. That's how we're not. We're, how do you the, pray? The today? Marines, the Marines aren't coming to save the world. It's it's a man on his knees in prayer. That's yes. right. And how do we pray? And what's a great resource for praying in today's modern the world? The greatest resource online. Not MC the Hammer. One, not MC not Hammer. MC Hammer. MC he's Hammer great and get, he's he great gone. Yeah, he's gone. He's gone. Yeah, right. But Hallow is still here. Yes. And Hallow has been here, and there's a reason why it's the number one Catholic app on the uh, App Store. Tremendous amount of resources. I could only imagine what John of Patmos would have written if he would have had a vision. Or someone gave him a phone, and then all of a sudden he's got this little device and it has all the prayers and all the scriptures, and all these people like Mike Schmitz, like, uh, you know, <laughs> Sister Helena, right? All reading all these prayers. And they're like, wow, this is like all of scripture in a box. He would have been, he would have wrote whole books about it. I can only presume. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They would but, definitely not be inspired scripture. But well, maybe. Okay. But yeah, I mean, maybe. look, this <laughs> Hollow is the number one Catholic prayer app. It has thousands of devotions, thousands of hours of guided prayer meditation. It has sleep aids. It has... Um, Lexio Divina, yeah, it has, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, the examines, has night prayer, morning prayer. It is really a complete compendium resource for praying and getting deeper into the spiritual patrimony and traditions of prayer in the Catholic Church. They went Church. over a billion prayers here recently. A billion prayers. It's amazing. That's, that's a lot of prayers, yeah. as far as prayers go. God bless you. Yeah, we're so proud of our sponsors, yeah, and we're God just so them. grateful for a relationship with them. We're so grateful for Jimmy's time today. And So if you go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash hollow, you can also try that app out for free, because that's what we do. We make deals. We make deals. We cut deals. We're <laughs> we like, hey, deals with people for you. Excellent. Guys, our listeners are awesome, right? And we're getting people like Jimmy in here to talk about really great things. And look, now we're going to talk about your app. You gotta cut us a deal. You gotta make it worth our listeners' while. Number right. one, have great products. That's why we only work with Exodus and Hollow. And then give them a deal. Give it to them for free. Let them try it, man. And they do. Because Catholic talk show. We love our listeners. Talk show. That's what's what And you're awesome listeners. And you are awesome <laughs> listeners. And who else is awesome? Jimmy Aiken. Jimmy Aiken. Jimmy Aiken <laughs> is my hero. I, I, I'm, I mean, and Howard. I mean, both of you guys, these guys have the most, most impressive up, beards. I will put up a poll on the Facebook page Come and over on here, Twitter Howard. and on YouTube, and we're going to see who has the more superior beard. Yes. I think this these are— great. At some point, beards don't get better. They we, just get different. We haven't had this much beard on our show <laughs> since the last time we had you on, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you took our three Why, beards thank together. You. Thank you, Jimmy. He's uh, got the idea. If you put our three beards together, it's still not one Jimmy Aiken <laughs> yeah, beard. We're like a sideburn on one of you guys. <laughs> well, I'm glad I don't get made fun of for my beard anymore and be called the soap opera beard. So no, your I'm beard's glad that looking I've got mighty. respect. Like, like I mean, I if said, Jimmy just gave me some respect, man, that's kind of awesome. I said your I beard looks like a recusant. No, he said that you were talking about my. You said it was a respectable beard, right, Jimmy? <laughs> okay. I like the hand motion. Yeah, no, it's all right. It's, all right. it's okay. fine. Um, but yeah, you know, we'll again we'll put a link to that structure of Revelation. But yeah, it's really there's awesome. So much to unpack in this book that we could probably do multiple yeah. oh, episodes yeah. and series on it. 
I think one piece of advice is go and read it, right? Mm -hmm. Go yeah, and read this. Start. But I really like Jimmy's approach mm -hmm. of kind of the historical method and using the first method of what did it mean to the person who was reading it at the time. So everyone wants to take the book of Revelation and say, oh, man, it's it means like, well, what did you see in the news? Oh, Revelation is coming to pass. And, you know. Mm -hmm. And and I really appreciated what Jimmy was saying, like, why why was it written this way? I remember when I first read the book of Revelation for myself, I was like 20 years old or 19 years old, and I absolutely approached it in the sense of, oh, this was, you know, the beloved disciple John, and he had these visions, you know, and I just kind of kept it there for a while until I started to do greater research when I went to school at Ave and the seminary and, and really started to realize like, wow, no, there's like a whole backstory and, and even just learning so much today too, Jimmy, I just, I just appreciate how much you've dedicated yourself in your faith to, to exploring the mysteries and articulating them so well with great scholarship and, you know, with Catholic answers and, and everything that you do and happy anniversary to come. Uh, you know, we look yeah. forward to many more opportunities to connecting with you and, and sharing the beautiful faith that we, that we celebrate each and every day as Catholics. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure to be here, and I'm happy to come back anytime. Jimmy, we'll have you on as much as we can get you because it's always a pleasure. Yeah. Um, so, guys, if you want to, go to CatholicTalkShow.com right now. You can subscribe to us on every resource, whether it's on Google or Apple Podcasts or it's on Spotify. Uh, we're on all the social medias. And if you want to help us out and continue the show growing and being able to bring in great guests like Jimmy, go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Patreon. You get all kinds of great gifts like hoodies, coffee mugs, uh, different devotionals and sacramentals. And it's our way of showing gratitude for you allowing us to continue to do this show. And, so, and if, you, if you're out there and you're listening, because we have a lot of uh, followers on all the podcasting forums and the audio version of this, uh, if you don't follow us on YouTube, I don't know what you're waiting for. So make sure you hit YouTube, especially for this show. Fast forward to the beautiful faces of Jimmy Aiken as well as Howard, our producer, and we want you to participate in this, uh, this survey. That's right. And click the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and continue to spread the good news right here at the Catholic Talk Show, and we'll see you next week. God bless.